Hey there, welcome to Money Never Sleeps, a podcast that looks inside the head of entrepreneurs and at what makes them do what they do. I'm Pete Townsend, and this is episode 44, which is the second of two special episodes recorded live at the recent Dublin Tech Summit 2019. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is kindly sponsored by Ireland's fintech and financial services recruitment specialist, Top Tier Recruitment. If you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, we highly recommend you have a chat with the team at Top Tier Recruitment as they really know their stuff. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com and tell them we sent you. For this episode, we recorded a fireside chat with Mihai Alisi and me on day one of the Dublin Tech Summit last month. Mihai Alisi is the founder of the Akasha Foundation, a nonprofit born at the intersection of blockchain and collective intelligence. Before founding Akasha, Mihai was one of the co-founders of both Ethereum and Bitcoin Magazine. Given what I've been up to the last few years, getting to know Mihai was just awesome. So away we go with episode 44 of Money Never Sleeps. Good afternoon, Dublin. Dear Great Dublin. How we doing? I see we got a nice change over the crowd going here, which is fantastic. And our minutes are ticking away, Mihai. You're down to 1848. Wow. So um, let's get started. So I'm Pete Townsend, founder of Norio Ventures, principal at thestartup.com, author of Chaos, co-host of Money Never Sleeps podcast, available for download on iTunes and Spotify now. Mihai Alisi has joined us. Um, he is visiting us from the wonderful canton of Zug in Switzerland, uh, where his headquarters is of the Akasha Project, which he founded a few years ago, um, and also uh, well-known as a co-founder of Ethereum and founder of Bitcoin Magazine. So welcome to Dublin. It's a pleasure to be here. Hello, Thank everyone. Um... Mihai, so let, let's, <laughs> let's get started, right? Yep. So um, what, what we've kind of talked about is with what you're doing right now, there's some important formative moments of your life that took place um, less than 10 years ago, more or less, uh, that have kind of led you down this path. Maybe you want to just give us a, some insight into that. Sure. So if I would pick uh, the start of the, the formative uh, moment, I would go to when I was around 10 years. And, you know, as a little kid, when you hear like thunderstorms and you have lightnings in the sky and so on, it's like so magic and being afraid. But then I stumbled upon one of these little books in like physics in everyday life. And then I found out that if you count the seconds between you see the light and then you hear the sound, you can actually have an idea on how far that lightning is. So that kind of made me believe that the world around us can be understood if you try to. And then in the next years, I uh, started learning English by watching uh, movies with subtitles and playing games. So that was also like a really interesting uh, kind of way of tapping into a whole different areas of knowledge that was kind of encrypted before. Uh, and I had a strong interest in computers, which led me to informatics in high school and later on in cybernetics, statistics and information economy in uh, university. Okay. So this is around 2010. And this is also when, uh, due to a family health problem, uh, when my father had a stroke, uh, we went to this physiotherapy hospital. This is, by the way, in uh, Sibir, Romania, uh, from there originally. And uh, that, that's when I heard from one of the nurses that I was lucky and we were lucky to benefit from the treatment uh, in, in this hospital and from the personnel because the hospital was about to be shut down soon. And then I was like, well, why? Because I saw like uh, miraculous recovering from my father and there's also a younger person that was in a car accident recovering, so regaining the ability to enjoy life. 
Um, and that's when I found out that actually there were some uh, deep interests uh, involved and the owner of the building was actually the local church. I was like, what? How can that be? Uh, and then I said, no, I, I, I'm going to do something about it. And then for the next uh, couple of days, I really tried to figure out what I could do to stop this from happening. And uh, in the end, I figured out that, you know, that I cannot really do anything on my own. And that's when I started gathering like, emails from all like, the local newspapers, the local blogs, the local TV stations and national. And I, I asked them to look into this problem. It's like, hey, this is a good uh, thing we have. My name is Mihai, and this is what's, what's going on. And actually, then the, the reporter started to go ask questions, like, what's going on? The largest newspaper in the, the local area published actually my, my email, which was a bit of a surprise. Uh, and the effect was that two, two weeks later, a local politician capitalized on the public horror because people started to like, what? The church shutting this place down and so on. Yeah. Like, how can that be? And then uh, this local politician, hey, this hospital is actually a really good uh, thing we have here. We shouldn't shut it down. So then the people were like, wow, that guy is a really cool politician. We should vote for him. And then the hospital was not shut down. Yeah. That, so, was, yeah. That, that was for me a moment when I kind of, you know, the real change and uh, making things happen is not just in the movie, movies. And uh, you can do something and things happen or don't happen because people know about them or don't know about them. Yeah, so like, like you kind of said to me earlier, Mihai, that once you get enough people caring about something, that's when real change starts to happen. Yeah. Right? Now, moving on from there and, and thinking about, yes, that important formative moment and knowing that you have a voice and that you can influence others, right? Mm. That um, Bitcoin Magazine, the opportunity to launch that came along. Um, tell us how that started and how did that lead to the next thing? So basically around 2011, uh, in a pff, random conversation with someone from Argentina, thank you, Internet, uh, he mentioned uh, a decentralized digital uh, currency thing named Bitcoin, but I forgot that the name Bitcoin, but I uh, recall the de decentralized digital currency. And then a couple of weeks later, I kind of remembered, and then I searched, and then I stumbled into Bitcoin. And I was coming already with this uh, idea that some things happen or don't happen when people know about them. And when I was trying to learn, is this actually a real thing or, you know, another Nigerian kind of uh, prince uh, yeah. thing? Uh, it was hard, especially in 2011. Like, the main source of information was a forum, bitcointalk.org, a small village of sorts. And uh, it was challenging. And that's when uh, across uh, some of the articles I stumbled upon was, were written by Vitalik. And we got in touch and, you know, we kind of agreed that uh, it would be a really good addition to the landscape to have a coherent source of information, education, outreach, and so on. So people, more people get to know about this. So maybe yeah. it happens, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. And just, again, getting that community thing going, mm -hmm. and building that virtual um, global community, right, yep. to an extent. Um, then after Bitcoin Magazine, or, or they, that kept going, but Ethereum. Um, you were co-founder of Ethereum. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, after launching Bitcoin Magazine and so on, it was like a really interesting opportunity to get to know this space from within, rather than, you know, trying to look from, from outside. And also it gave us, uh, you know, in the beginning it was like, oh, Bitcoin is the one, it's the silver bullet and so on. But it also was... Uh, a learning experience for us to understand the limits of what this thing can be. It's not a one-size-fits-all and it's like every, all our problems are solved and so on. It was clear as, uh, you know, until 2013 that uh, it was mainly designed as kind of a digital cash single use case or like uh, 
application, in this yep. case, a decentralized ledger for uh, tracking. For digital cash. Yep. And then uh, around the end of 2013, uh, it was also during some of the conversations with Vitalik that we were talking about DAOs as then distributed autonomous organizations and how, how would that fit into the, the bigger picture. It was also a moment where we kind of realized that uh, you have and also, like, you know, the question, what is blockchain? That also the explanation shifts as your own understanding of what this thing is evolves. And uh, it was this understanding that evolved from, like, okay, blockchain equals money of sorts to blockchain equals a world computer as yes. a sort of general purpose, uh, programmable kind of thing through, through smart contracts. So that was... Uh, a really big shift, and if you think about it, we are here in the first decade after the invention of this technology, still scratching the surface of what can be done. Um, and uh, this is uh, in early in January 2014, together with uh, Roxana and a few others, we traveled to Switzerland as, as a co-founder of Ethereum. One of my kind of what I uh, spearheaded was a search for a jurisdiction. What, what yep. would be the, the home for this project? And that's uh, when we went to Switzerland. And uh, the Tsug Canton also might be known as Crypto Valley for some. So if you heard that, that's uh, Tsug in, in... Beehive came up with Crypto Valley, right? Was, Down with Silicon, up with crypto. So it was during one of the discussions with the local authorities when I was trying to also present like the opportunities. Like this thing is not just about Silk Road and, you know, the, there was all, all, all about yeah. the, the, the classic kind of cycle of mainstream. It's like, what about the children? It's like, <laughs> there's, there's more than just, you know, the, the bad stuff. And uh, following this, uh, there was the genesis of the Ethereum blockchain. So after the, you know, we, we had like a very successful, I think for a brief moment, it was the biggest crowdfunding uh, campaign uh, successfully as a one-time event. So we raised the equivalent of $18.5 million in Bitcoin. Yeah. It was kind of a uh, cypherpunk inception way of like using a digital uh, cryptocurrency on blockchain to build the next blockchain. Yeah. And uh, when the blockchain uh, was launched in Ethereum, and, you know, you had the first block, it's like everyone is like, it's still working. The second block, the third block, and one, first 100 blocks, they're like, whoo, this coming. thing is, is live. So from like a, a dream of sorts, it became like a platform for other people to build their, their dreams. And also, uh, I felt that uh, as a co-founder, my duty as, it was kind of fulfilled. Yep. And I stepped down as, uh, from the Ethereum Foundation as a vice president and focused my energy on trying to figure out what we can now build with these things. Is it real? So tell, tell us about the inspiration for the Akasha project. So um, I think in a way, if, you, uh, if I look at this, these moments that we briefly touched upon, I think it's a continuation of that lesson. And uh, like the pieces that we tried to mix first was like, can we build a decentralized social network that does not have a central point of failure or us being in the middle of this uh, information flow between people? And after a few weeks of testing, uh, together with Marius and uh, a few others, we actually uh, got to the point, yes, this can work, but it's not just the blockchain thing. So we have Ethereum, and beside Ethereum, you have a bunch of other complementary technologies. So like one of them being the interplanetary file system, or shortened as IPFS. Um, and basically, we use the IPFS to store the information, the content. So you know, you have like videos, pictures, text, and so on, and use the Ethereum blockchain as an index. So people could see what has been published, and then people would connect to another person and peer-to-peer -peer actually. Yeah, that's that. a big thing. It is all peer-to-peer, -peer, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think we were, if I'm not mistaken, the first ones that we actually tried to mix this technology in this way, and successfully. Yeah. 
So now it's kind of normal. It's like this was like early or actually late 2015 after the, the launch. Yeah, I mean, if you think about some of the social networks that are out there today, there is this central priestess of trust, mm -hmm. um, you know, component to all of that, and that. Um, opening that up and saying that, well, it doesn't need to be about one single group that has control of all that data and that it can just be, it's distributed, yeah. it's decentralized. It operates on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. That's a pretty strong proposition. Yep, and, and there's also like this, uh, we're like in such a bad uh, position, like this is such a big problem. Um, when you think about like, imagine this for a second. So we have like this 7 billion plus planet filled with beautiful human beings. Uh, each unique in their own way, and then you have like this giant hyper-centralizing the relationship established between these uh, human beings, and it's like you have this entity running this service, you know, you have the Facebook and others, uh, but in particular you have Facebook being the biggest one, and you have this entity with the ability, with a single command line to silence half a planet. So it's like, where's the intelligence in like that intelligence species? Uh, yeah. And you also have these other problems. So I'm going to use this as a huge prop here. Absolutely. You know, you have the data information, knowledge, wisdom kind of uh, triangle. And you have like the lower layer being data, and then you have like information, and then you have the knowledge, and then hopefully at the top there you have like some wisdom. But in the current kind of uh, situation, we have like a, a vast amounts of data, you know, the big data, and you have like some information. And when I say some information, it's like when it comes to Facebook and other social network operators, you have like the information that is derived from your personal data that helps them serve you like better ads. And then, you know, the knowledge and wisdom is almost like very thin. So you don't yeah. have actually a, a, a pyramid there. So on the other side, you also have this understanding and this talk about the global village. But uh, when, whenever you will hear this again, like about the global village, also ask who sees themselves as the mayor of this global village? And in these cases, like you have uh, usually an entity or corporation or some sorts of person kind of already projecting themselves in that power position. And on the other side, like with Akasha, what we want to do is like we have like a layer of open data and like the information and all this stuff that can be derived with an approach that is interoperable by default. And then, you know, in the hopes that we can uh, redistribute uh, knowledge and hopefully from that to derive some wisdom in the society as a whole. Because we need it uh, if we are to stand a chance to solve some of these big challenges that we face as a civilization. Some of these peer-to-peer -peer, um, opportunities that we talked about before, Mihai, were along the lines of um, improving humanity and improving the ability for individuals to uh, use the creative side of their brain, right, rather than the analytical side of their brain. Um, and by having this information in a, uh, you know, presented in a decentralized way, having these communities connected, mm -hmm. you know, what, what are some of the perhaps use cases that, uh, that you think could be interesting along the lines of, you know, helping humanity get back to that notion uh, that is brought about in the book Sapiens of 100 to 150 people being kind of the, you know, the real climax point of what a group can get done. Right. So there's like a lot of interesting research on this topic and uh, maybe this is a rabbit hole that I explored a bit deeper because it, uh, we were operating this like social network space. And uh, starting from the brain, right? We, we are wired with this uh, social brain and in nature you kind of have this natural incentive. So you know, you have like sex feels good, you do, you ensure the reproduction of the species. We have kind of a similar uh, 
let's say, desire or we long to belong to a community or some group of people. And I, to Mike, you know, an assumption here might be that this is nature's way of incentivizing us in connecting into yes. this kind of networks. So, like, one of the key uh, elements of, like, humanity's success to this point was the ability to come together in groups and achieve what we cannot achieve as individuals. So, in a similar kind of uh, fashion, when we also look at uh, the collective intelligence versus collected intelligence, like, again, if we use this uh, pyramid, like today and the way is like this information society is like a collected information society, right? So when I say collective intelligence, like this also complements the side and you, you have many people and projects talking about AI. But when I say CI, it's like, I, and I know this metaphor is not really applicable because we usually use both hemispheres, but I would say that the AI might be more like the logical analytical side of the brain. And then on the other side, we have this creative side that is uh, kind of natural yeah. uh, to us as humans, which kind of the creative side, more the, the right hemisphere. And many of the talks, and you know, either about the future of our society or the implication of technology and so on, seem to kind of discard that humanness, that side of us. And like, what is humanity without that thing? It's like a, a big question there. So um, that, I think, also points, and uh, the CTO of NASA in his very uh, cool presentation was talking about, you know, you have this uh, group of people on Mars, for example, or so. It's like, what if they cannot uh, communicate with the home planet? It's like, what happens to them? So I would argue that we as uh, individuals being network and part of these groups, we exhibit this uh, naturally, like this collective intelligence. But simply until now, we either discarded this side of our humanness like, uh, and in general, like, masses have been seen as this dumb thing, you know, from the Freudian and, and so on, like, in, in general, when looking at the psychology. But I would argue that we're actually very smart, and if you would look into the future, it's like, what does it mean also when looking at it, the bigger picture, applying this on planet Earth, let's say, for now, and you have, like, you know, the Internet of Things, smart cities, and all this discussion, but, like, what is a smart city if not it would be composed by smarter citizens? So... I, I, I come from this perspective where we could use this ability, natural ability of us to connect with each other yep. uh, and with these mini supercomputers in our pockets to build something that facilitates this collaboration between us as individuals and as part of collectives without losing our, individuals, uh, our yep. individuality. And something to keep in mind here is that, you know, some people see this uh, collectiveness as using the uniqueness of the individual, being absorbed like in a bore kind of fashion, but that would be a dumb collective. It's like you need diversity. So the, all the talk on like, you know, the differences among us being standing in the way of progress, this is actually a feature, not a bug. That makes the collective smarter. It brings up and opens it to many perspectives. And I'm talking about, you know, like race, knowledge, uh, technology, a bunch of other things that come together in not something limited to, to something specific. Diversity is good in all, all, all yep. areas here. Okay. So the, the, I, I really like the smart cities concept of, um, you know, the, that, well, rather than smart cities, we're talking about smart Smarter citizens. Citizen, yeah. And that each of us are organic sensors in our own right. Yeah. Um, picking up human feeling and emotion and perception and sensation. Um, and that that then becomes part of a, a co collective, right? And that you are, you are bringing these communities together virtually. I think it's a pretty, pretty strong proposition. A couple of the other things you talked about as well, Mihai, were um, imagine being able to let a community know quicker that a storm is coming or a tsunami is coming, mm -hmm. right? Um, perhaps crowdsourcing um, the conversion of an exoskeleton that is used for military purpose. Exactly. Um, using that as to solve paralysis, right? Or even the um, getting a big, you know, uh, a big pharma company to open source, 
um, the development of a new drug. Or right? not even relying on a big pharma company to steer the direction of our research, but rather tap into the collective intelligence we have and uh, analyze from a you know, purely humanitarian, or also from a humanitarian, not just a profit-driven kind of yep. what makes sense. Oh, we won't invest in this, even if it will cure this disease for billions of people because it's not patentable or easy to make a profit from. And I think this also points down to the way we are kind of in a hangover from the industrial kind of society society and like the military uh, top-down control view where even if you look at the companies and in general when you have a description of someone is like chief executive officer uh, chief operating officer why is it called an officer so it's like I think that uh, points back to the military kind of way it does. and in military in general when you look you have strategy and planning around the enemy but the more you kind of base your whole strategy and your your plans around the enemy the more you become like the enemy yeah. so Hopefully, in the next, and what we will understand and what we can uh, bring in the, the future would be this uh, not just coming together against the common enemy, but also realizing that it makes sense and everyone benefits if we come together for the common good. Looking at the, those win-win-win situations, and it is possible. Also, uh, multi-testing of like various governance systems is that today we operate in a world that was built under the limitations and some of the restrictions uh, around 200 years ago. So. Absolutely. It's outdated. It's become outdated. Looking at the future with what Akasha will be enabling, um, what are you most excited about? That's a, that's a big one. So I think uh, this event is a, a perfect example of some of the things to be excited upon. And it's not just one particular piece of the puzzle. I think the exciting thing is the convergence of all these things coming together. So you have you know, the communication technology, you have the manufacturing technology like 3D printing, uh, blockchain, and introducing also these governance systems that you can experiment with. You have also the cryptocurrencies like information as, uh, as value. So I think what these uh, things and what got, gets me most excited about is that without even realizing we're kind of building the pillars or the puzzle pieces that would enable us to build new uh, socially or like operating systems for our society. Yep. So it doesn't have to be, you know, one thing to rule them all. It can be many coexisting and co-evolving. Monocultures in general are not ideal, right? I gotcha. So we are talking about benefits when it comes to resilience, faster response times, the ability of people to organize without having to go through that command and control. And it's like you have yep. the increased efficiency. And sometimes if you think about it, why do we have these institutions? Why do we have this kind of uh, government idea? It was designed to serve the citizens and to make their lives better. So if we have now the pieces to kind of upgrade or like build the next model, why not? I gotcha. Makes sense. Mihai, thank you. Really appreciate you coming to Dublin to do this. Um, thank you to everybody out in the crowd. Um, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you. That wraps it up, folks. Thanks to the team at the Dublin Tech Summit for letting us piggyback off the sound desk and record the chat with Mihai Alisi from the Akasha Foundation. To learn more about the work of the Akasha Foundation, you can find more information as well as the networks that they're on at akasha.org. That's A-K-A-S-H-A dot org. Remember, if you or a colleague need help attracting and retaining great talent for your fintech or financial services company, get in touch with the team at Top Tier Recruitment as they really know their stuff. You can find them at toptierrecruitment.com. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Money Never Sleeps on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. You can also subscribe via our website to channels like Spotify and Stitcher, so just go to the subscribe page on moneyneversleeps.ie and follow the links. If you're searching directly on iTunes or Spotify, Money Never Sleeps is spelled as all one word. 
For more info and links, check out the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie. You can drop us a line on info at moneyneversleeps.ie or at MNS show on Twitter. As for me, I increase the odds of startup success. DM me on Twitter at Pete Townsend NV if you want to know more. And you can follow Owen on Twitter at Owen Fitzgerald9. Finally, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for editing this podcast. Till next time, thanks for listening. See ya. Money never sleeps, pal.